this morning, uh, I've got the privilege to speak, and it's been, uh, it's actually been an enjoyable last few, uh, honestly, last few weeks as I've been thinking about this and praying about this. Appreciate your prayers as I dive into God's Word. A couple of things just before we get started to sort of let you know. Um, last week, if you are here, you heard Justin um, help us mount, mount Everest, as it were, uh, through the helicopter as we flew through that mountain of verses. Fortunately, this week I don't have quite—I don't have a Mount Everest, but it's a large mountain, nevertheless. A um, couple things you won't see here this morning. We're not going to get into. This is not going to be a numerology sermon. Uh, we're not going to—we're not going to break apart a timing. I'm not going to pull a whiteboard out here and start drawing uh, various timelines. Um, we also want to, as we think about a text like this, we want to resist the temptation to overread the text, to 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 zoom in and and say, well, this. You know, this applies to me in this, this particular fashion. You have to do that very carefully uh, in a text like this. This is a difficult text to dissect. I'll be, I mean, so I, I, as part of my you know, homework and preparation for this, I, I glanced through a number of concordances, right through a number of, of uh, commentaries, and it was uh, pretty clear uh, that they didn't really know what this is talking about. Um, they, they actually, there's lots of buts, ands, or if you believe this, or depending on your interpretation of this or that. Um, God's Word is, is uh, given to us for our understanding. And so my hope this morning is for us to really be able to see some of the, the big pictures on this, of what's happening. Um, is, in fact, we should just practice here this morning. The big, big picture for us is Jesus is coming again. Can I get it? I'm sorry, let's try that again. Jesus is coming back. Yes. Uh, That's pretty good. We'll try again later because... That really is, I believe, where this is heading us. And the action that we get out of this, this is not simply for us to understand. Um, this, this text certainly would, is, is a good one for you to sit around with, with your friends, grab your favorite beverage, get relaxed, and start debating this. I mean, this is, this is a great coffee house kind of, like, what do you think about this or what about that? Very valuable for that. Not going to do that this morning. We're going to try and resist that. We're going to try and look for a large sweep through this. And then ultimately, what is our response? What's our action out of this? So would you pray with me? Dear Father, we, we come before you this morning humbly. Uh, we, we approach your text. We need to hear from you. We approach your word. Uh, Lord, speak to us. Lord, and I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts here this morning would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name. Very early on the morning of this past Good Friday, two sisters departed for a renowned spot at the Grand Canyon, planning to be there to watch a spectacular sunrise. Carly and Kelsey Richardson had their whole lives ahead of them at 1.59 a.m. on April 14th. The devastating impact from a wrong-way driver at 2 a.m. resulted in sudden death with no warning at all. Their untimely deaths were as shocking as they were unexpected. And I say this even not having known them. We, we read about them in the news. Many of, uh, uh, and I actually observed the accident uh, a few hours afterwards. Their untimely deaths uh, is, is shocking and unexpected, even though, the death, even though the death and wrong-way drivers are not uncommon. The abruptness of that event was profoundly unexpected. This... That tragic event, that incident, is a small analogy of the return of Jesus. 
the Son of Man will come on the clouds in a cosmic shattering event. Will you be awake? So the big idea this morning is that Jesus promises that he is coming back. So stay awake and pay attention. Let's start and uh, reread. I'm, I'm not going to be, because of the, the large amount of text and the excellent job that, J- that John did for us this morning reading this, uh, we're, we're going we're to be selectively going through this. But I'd like to just reread the first two verses this morning for us. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will be thrown down. So Jesus here this morning makes a proclamation it's, you could say it's a prophecy. You could, he's certainly using prophetic language here. But I just felt as I'm thinking about what this is Jesus talking. It's a prophecy just seems, he is being prophetic, but it just seems this is a proclamation. I mean, this is the creator of the universe letting us know something's going to happen. So our first point this morning, Jesus proclaims the temple will fall. This is a public declaration that he makes. If we think about what he's saying here, though, if we put ourselves back in what the, the listeners, remember, this is public, so as he's walking along, the listeners, what, what, what analogy, what, what would that be like saying today? I mean, we, we might think, oh, well, this, this, our church is going to be destroyed. I mean, it, it, that's really, I don't think, the right kind of idea. I think it'd be more helpful to, to put yourself back and we're thinking of you know dates here. If we put your back and put yourself back on September 11, 2001, this is the equivalent of telling the Jews that 9/11 is going to happen for them. The center of their spiritual life, their government life, their social life, in many ways their economic life, shattered, destroyed. Think how, think how you responded. We weren't even we weren't even nearby. So this prediction that Jesus is making is shocking. And while it, it is shocking for them, of course, if, if we think through what, where we've been in, in Mark up until this point, Jesus has um, more and more emphatically been telling the, the spiritual leaders that they're missing it. They're off. Uh, and, and, of course, we saw the cleansing of the temple. In some ways, this statement that the, the temple will fall is, is a culmination of that. Of course, it's not Jesus himself that will be bringing about the, the destruction he's... he's um, He's proclaiming, he's predicting this event that's going to be happening. As we think about, okay, so temple, or, you know, there's some things we can sort of key on. Is, is Jesus really talking about the literal temple here? You know, in John 2, we see Jesus compared himself to the temple. And he made a prediction uh, that, uh, the, that the temple would be torn down and built up in three days. In fact, as part of his... Um, the, the trial that Jesus went on, that was, in, in all the Gospels, that was a charge made against him. Hey, he's going to destroy the temple. Of course, he, he at that time was referring to himself. I really think, though, in this context, he is actually talking about the literal temple. The, this, this idea of stones, not one not being left on top of another, while maybe technically there might even today be a couple... I mean, this, this is talking about a wholesale destruction of not, the temple, of all the inner buildings, and and the, and the whole area. 
utter destruction, to the point of looking at it being unrecognizable. So Jesus, as we move along here in this text, Jesus moves to a private setting. In verse, uh, verses moving on here in 3 and 4, it says, As he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So Jesus is asked this question by these two sets of brothers. We're used to James and John and Peter. Andrew shows up here. I don't know that there's necessarily any real significance, just that he's along for the ride. He's one of the, one of the brothers here. And they're asking him, understandably, he's made this shocking pronouncement, and they're like, hey, give us some, you know, some heads up. What, what's going to happen here? And so really, the, the rest of this, this chapter of 13 is Jesus' response to that question. Um, it's the most lengthy section of Jesus' words, uninterrupted in Mark, that we've, we've seen so far. Um, he, so, so he's going to give us this response. Again, as I mentioned, we, we, we look at this response, and I'm sure many of you, you know, you've probably heard this before, but you're looking at this and you're going, okay, what, is that, what does he mean by this, and what does he mean? So we're going we're gonna to try to look at some of that. We, as I said before, though, we really are going to try and look for the, for the grand sweep. Jesus begins his response in, uh, to, to the two brothers, two sets of brothers, uh, verses 5 through 8, essentially saying there's going to be some things that happen that you'll see that are the equivalent of birth pangs. And if I could, you know, if I were telling my kids this, it'd be, hey, don't freak out. It's, don't, don't be alarmed, don't be upset. This is to be expected, and this has to be. Jesus then um, moves on and talks about in verses 9 through 13 that there'll be persecution. They'll be experiencing persecution. Uh, they'll be on trial. Um, he'll, he, he talks about the gospel being proclaimed. Uh, and he talks about even as, he, as they're on trial that the Spirit will be encouraging them and giving them words to say and helping to defend them. Again, Jesus wanting his disciples to get a, a flavor of what's going on. He's letting them know what's happening. And we're really still in this context of Jesus talking about the temple. So then we get to um, one of our you know, real interesting verses that, would, that we could take you know, a whole week on, going off, okay, what in the world is this abomination of desolation? Um, we look at verses 14 through 18. Jesus says, when, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where you ought not to be, let the reader understand. That, and then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is in the housetop not go down or enter his house or take anything out. He goes on. So this, Jesus introduces this topic, abomination of desolation. What are, we, what are we talking about here? What is this? Well, so we think about an abomination. Look that word up uh, in the, the Bible dictionary. It's it's anything that's foul, detestable, filthy, and often associated with idolatry. Uh, desolation simply means to lay waste or ruin or to destroy something. And as you look around, um, we'll get to Daniel one one second, but if you look through, just do a word search on, on abomination, you actually find Ezekiel 
is the most frequent use, 41 times. And it's almost always the prophet Ezekiel scolding, chastising, berating the Jewish leaders for the abominations that they have committed in the temple, in God's eyes, over and over. So we do see this, this notion though, of the abomination of desolation. In fact, one of the parallel gospel accounts specifically mentions Daniel, sends us over there. So we go, let's go look over in Daniel. And it, it turns up in 9, 11, and 12. We won't be turning there this morning, uh, but you can read later, Daniel 9, 11, and 12. There's these different references. Um, and, and we see Daniel's prophecy occurring. Some would say, well, Daniel's immediate prophecy was perhaps satisfied uh, with this, this, this idea in 168 B.C., uh, where King Antiochus Epiphanius IV came in and destroyed their, that temple. So maybe that's, maybe that's what's, what, what Daniel's talking about. And Jesus seems to be reaching back and saying, hey, that's going to that's gonna happen again. And history tells us uh, that in 70 AD, the Romans came in under Titus and destroyed the temple. And that actually occurred, if you'll note, 70 AD, roughly 40 years after Jesus gave this sermon. So that would easily qualify, by the way, for a generation. What, what exactly was the abomination of desolation? Again, a, looking at it, it, it could have been Titus. It could have been an event some, or some other events that, that occurred 67, 68 AD under the Zealots. The, the point, I think, though, of this text is that Jesus was giving a particular warning to a particular group of people in Judea about a particular event that was going to happen, enough to give them a warning to get out of Dodge. Is that warning for us? I, it's, again, the depends sort of how you take this. I, I take it that, no, this, is, this text is giving us a, a warning that, that was provided uh, to, the, to the Jews, uh, to the Jewish Christians in Judea. The only other element that, just so you know, I mean, I, I do realize that this, this term, abomination of desolation, does show up, sort of, uh, later on. Um, you'll see things in Revelation 13, perhaps Revelation 17, of this, of this idea. Um, it could be Paul's man of lawlessness. Again, I, I'm not going to go there other than just to mention that and let you know that, that, that there are, there's plenty of controversy on that. But this seems to be from Jesus talking about a particular event that occurred. So, Jesus gives us then, if we hop down um, to verse 28, he seems to give us a parallel that speaks to what, what this is talking about and, and how, to, how to understand this. So we see this parable of the fig tree. Now, I think this is a, a real basic parable. This is not necessarily going back and saying, okay, Remember the fig tree I cursed, or you know some other. I think this is just really basic. The parable is in just just before summer, the leaves on a tree are going to turn green. Got it? I mean, it's it's. I think it's essentially that simple. And so in this case, the you know the leaves are the you know the the, the sign that, that these things are going to be happening. And the you know the result is that the summer, if you will. Uh, the season, is the fact the Roman army is at the gates. It's near. Um, it talks about the... Um, and this, So this, this is a warning for them. We think about, okay, what, 
So the, the temple, of course, as I mentioned, is destroyed in 70, 70 A.D. Um, what replaced the temple? Uh, I was thinking about that. What did, what did, so Jesus, Jesus sort of predicts this event, proclaims this event that's going to happen. The temple will be destroyed. Sort of ending formally, uh, you know, officially, if not symbolically, the, the, Jewish, the, um, the Jewish reign, if you will, the first, first covenant. The Old Covenant. Um, of course, Jesus' resurrection uh, capstones that. But here for the Jews, this should be a clear sign. Old way is gone. So think about, well, what replaces the temple? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3 that, in fact, our bodies as believers are the temple. It says our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So as believers now, we've moved into needing a temple that we go to. to we are the temple. In fact, if you take that thought further, we think about what is God's church? Is it the stained glass? Is it the lights? Well, no. It's the gathering of believers that together we are God's temple. Finally, though, as, as you think about a Christ's return, which we're going to get to in one second, we see this picture in Revelation 21 of the new Jerusalem. And the the heaven, new heavens and the new earth come down, and it says there that God is our temple. We don't need an artifact. We don't need a structure. We'll be able to worship God fully at that time. As we conclude this section, it's really, I think, important to understand that God is in charge of history. His, he is sovereign over history. And if we look at this section, what Jesus is asking for, be faithful. So if our first point, God, Jesus proclaiming the temple is going to fall, our second point this morning, Jesus proclaims that he will come again. Let me try that again. Jesus proclaims that he will come again. I'm not going to let you go. All right, thank you. Right. Got to get excited this morning. I don't know if you guys are awake. So we look at Jesus' next bold statement that he makes. If it wasn't enough to declare that the center of Jewish life was going to be destroyed, let's see what he comes up with next. Verse 24 says, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. The, throughout history, the church has actually had a statement that kind of sums up what they, some of the, the core beliefs with, with Christ as it relates to um, uh, the, the good news. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Anybody finish it for me? Christ will come again, right? Well, this is, this is where this comes from. This is the, the, the gospel account. Of course, these are, as I mentioned, they're paralleled in, in Matthew and Luke. But this is, this is Christ's declaration that he will be coming back. As we've been going through Mark, um, you will not find really any overt reference to this idea, Christ coming back. I mean, as much as the, as the disciples might have been surprised, shocked, and Peter even, like, you can't do that when Jesus said, I'm going to die. I'm going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to be 
killed. You know, no, you can't do that. And he, he alludes to his resurrection. Well, here we have this new concept that he's giving given this, his audience. He is going to come back. And he's going to come back in a way that is unmistakable. We see references, references to this, and I'll read, uh, read one of them, but we see references to this throughout Luke 21, Luke 12, Matthew 24, even back in Daniel 7, certainly Revelation 14 and, and Hebrews 9. In other places, we see this, this clear statement that Jesus will be coming back. So, what are just some, as I think about um, what, is this, what are these verses uh, communicating to us? Uh, well, there's a cosmic scale event that's going to happen. All right? So, there talks about the sun, the moon, the stars, heavenly powers. It, 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 the cosmos is shaken when Jesus returns. It's going to be unmistakable. talks about every knee bowing and every tongue confessing. The knees bow, by the way, voluntarily or otherwise. Jesus returns for all to see and recognize. says He comes in great power. Then He promises to gather the elect. Those followers of Christ that have put their faith in Him. And then I think it also shows God's sovereignty is clearly on display. God's in control. If we look at, a, at, at Paul's take on this, we, we, we hop over to 1 Thessalonians 4. I'm just going to read 15 through 18 just to give you this, this, uh, this Paul's reinforcement of this. He says there, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, are, we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with those words. So we think about this, the, the, sort of the, more or less the second half of this, this passage, uh, second third, I suppose, of, of Mark 13. We see a couple things that are true about Jesus' second coming. It seems to be presaged by some, some tribulation that's going on. Now, let me just, let me just admit and, and let you know, as you go through these verses, it is very difficult to tell, is Jesus talking about the temple destruction? Or is Jesus talking about the second coming? Or maybe he's talking about both. Now, I think the reason that it's important for us to know um, as it comes to application is I don't think Jesus is asking us this morning to pray that he doesn't come in winter. Um, just a, you know, I, I think that, that would not be the right application from this. So I think it is helpful to understand what Jesus is talking about and how that applies to us. What, what do we need to, to be aware of? Well, I think the first, this idea of tribulation, that he's letting us know life is going to be difficult for the believer. Should be no shock there, no, no news. Um, there's going to be various forms. He, he he lets the disciples know in the earlier verses that there's going to be these specific trials that happen, beatings. If you read some of the, some of the you know, it's, it gets pretty bad. The family's turning in, uh, uh, brothers and sisters and fathers. It, 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 it's, it gets terrible. Jesus' point, though, I think with this, is that it's not, he doesn't warn us to avoid this. He warns us to be ready, to understand that it's coming. He also warns in verses 21 to 22, 
which are essentially a repeat of verse 6, that there's false Christ, little c, false Christ and Messiahs will be there. There'll be those that come along and say, hey, I'm, I'm Jesus, follow me, or this is the way. And again, Jesus is warning us, and the best way, of course, to, to determine a, a counterfeit is to know the, the true Christ. Do you know the true Christ this morning? Have you studied him? Other false Christs, I think, that are especially prevalent in our society today is the idea, the false belief, that materialism can save you. If I just get enough stuff, if I just have enough money, if my, my, my 401k is just big enough, I'll be fine. I don't, in fact, I don't, I mean, Jesus is fine, but I don't really need, I got this. I don't really need him. I think that's certainly a false Messiah, a false promise of hope. Our hope is only found in Jesus. Verse 23, and we're going to get to, this is going to flow into our next section, but verse 23, Jesus plainly says, be on your guard. Be ready. Understand that these things are going to be happening. Don't be surprised. And, and I don't think he's really asking, letting us know to be on your guard in the sense that, that we're the ones that have to, this is all on us. No, I think it's clear that, that Jesus wants us to be aware, but he's going to be, he's, he's right there with us. The Spirit is helping us. Then we get to, if we, if, as, we're, as we're flowing through these verses, we, we hop over to uh, one other difficult verse. I can't, can't avoid it. Um, verse 32 says, only the Father knows when. Jesus says, the angels don't know, you don't know, the Son doesn't know, only the Father knows. So how, I thought, wait a minute, I thought Christ was omniscient. I thought he knew everything. How, how can he not know? Well, to help us with this, we really need to hop over to Philippians 2. We're going to go back to Paul here and, and see what Philippians 2, 6-8 tells us about Christ and his humanity. Paul there says, who, though he, meaning Jesus, Christ Jesus, was, so though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this and this subject opens way up. What does it mean for, for Christ empty? Well, I think that the text does address this. I mean, he, he became man. Um, he added human nature to himself. So we have, we have Christ here with fully God, fully man, that we would all say is true. And in this particular case, it was God's divine plan for him not to need to know this date. And, and so therefore, if... You know, really, if we think if we could debate, okay, how does that work? It hurts my head. Jesus knows, but doesn't know. I don't know. I think the point, though, for us is that if Jesus didn't know, and he's okay with that, then I don't think we need to know. I, I think that's really the message. I think we should be comforted. We're in good company. We don't know the date. Guess what? Neither does Jesus, and, and he's good with that. It's fine. We should be fully trusting that Christ is in charge, and, and God's plan is working out. Chapter 13, as, as you zoom sort of way back out, sees Mark, and, and of course it's, it's Jesus here, putting two events together in context. That, you know, we might not say, wow, these go together. But 
He's putting the destruction of the temple and the second coming together in context. We see some, some similarities, some things that seem to sort of go together with tribulation and some other things, and we, and we see some, some dissimilarities. Uh, we see, you know, in one case, the abomination of desolation is the coming one, and the second one, it's Jesus is the coming man. But we, so that we see these things coming together. The, 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 the bottom line point, though, I think for this, is that God, God is sovereign over the end of history. Not just history, but the end. Now, I was thinking this morning as we, we celebrate this weekend, 4th of July, Independence Day, we're, we're celebrating as a nation. We're going back 250 almost years. It's our founding. It's a celebration time. We're looking back. Celebrate. Uh, we have Christmas. We celebrate Christmas here every, you know, December 25th. Some people come in, you know, out of the cold for that. And we're celebrating Christ's come, coming to earth. Of course, Easter, we celebrate his death, resurrection, and ascension. Not, not ascension, but death and resurrection. We celebrate those things. They happen in history. Why don't we have a second coming Sunday? Do you realize it's, it's history? It's written down. It's, it's, it's in, written in ink that we just can't see. But it is written down. It is as much a historical fact as Christ's first coming. It just hasn't happened for us yet. Church, we should be ready for that. We, should be, we, sh- we need to take uh, what Christ has to say here. And so I want to spend really the rest of the time uh, with, this, with, this, with this this morning looking at one of the things that's just repeated over and over throughout this whole text. So our, our third point is stay awake. By the way, Jesus was preaching them back you know, at that time. I'm This morning, if any of you are falling asleep, stay awake! Thank you. It's good. Um, so stay awake. Pay attention. Be on your guard. Be focused. Endure. Uh, the, just the word alone, stay awake, repeated four times. Be on your guard, repeated twice. I think Jesus is trying to let us know something here. Uh, he wants us to stay awake. Verse 33 says, Be on your guard. Keep awake. For you do not, you do not know when the time will come. So why, does, why do you think Jesus warns us? I like to step back just one quick second from that. Like, why, why did that happen? I mean, can we fully know why? Sometimes we can know why, but I'm going to speculate just a little bit. I think Jesus uh, is warning us for our safety. He's warning us because He loves us. He cares about us. Uh, just like you would warn your, your child about something that's I can, this is going to happen. He's, he's warning us. I think he also wants to encourage us. Um, it, think about this idea of sleep, the, this, this metaphor, staying awake for, for sleep. By the way, I don't think he's actually literally talking about not sleeping. I think it's okay to sleep. All right? So I think he's talking here about a spiritual dullness. 1 Thessalonians 5, we, we, we want to hop back over there for a moment. Uh, Paul's real helpful. says, you, meaning you Christians, are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet of hope of salvation. 
Again, Paul's using this metaphor of drunkenness and sober. I don't think he's talking about alcohol. I think he's talking about, are you there? Are you engaged? Do you see what's going on? Are you ready? Are you being obedient to Christ? Jesus wants us to know that hard times are coming. Again, repeated through this section, verses 8 through 9, 11 through 13, 19 through 22. It's going to be hard. It is hard. It's been hard. For you think about the sweep of history since Jesus left, Christians have been persecuted. You know, in some ways, I, I think it will get harder. I don't know. I look today, but certainly not. We don't see persecution here. Maybe we should be a little worried about that. But we, I mean, we're not seeing Christians killed for their faith. Certainly they are in China. But there's been periods of time that we see just wholesale slaughter. We're promised, though, in the midst of those hard times, in the midst of those trials, even literal trials in the case here where they were in front of the synagogue, that the Holy Spirit will sustain. And not just sustain, but guide and provide the words, provide wisdom. I think, I think one other thing, I just have to mention this, I mean, so the form of this verse is a clear command. I mean, there's no, Jesus isn't saying, hey, you know, if you feel like it, stay awake. You know, no, this is, a, this is a emphatic command. I mean, and it's, as I said, not just once, four times he says the exact same word, and I think eight times this, this, this idea clearly commanded. This isn't, this isn't an option. If you're a believer, this is not, this is not optional. So, Jesus gives us a, a parable, I think, to help us, um, uh, as, as parables do. And we won't take it too far, but we, we pop down to verse uh, 34 to 36. Jesus uses this parable and says, It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or in the midnight, the rooster crows in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. So Jesus is using this example. Hey, you've been entrusted. The master has said, hey, you have a role to play. You have a job to do. I'm going away. I'm going to be coming back. You don't know when, but there's a job for you to do. Um, and it's important not to fall asleep, not, not, to, not to not do your job, as it were. Not to not, it's, it's important to follow through. Clearly, in this case, the man or the master is Jesus. And the servants are Christians, are the believers assigned to this task. So, obvious question. And we close uh, with, with this, this piece here. What should we be doing? How, or, or you could phrase it another way. Eight ways to stay awake. So stay awake and pay attention. We've got eight ways that, that we see from the text and a few other places. Eight ways to stay awake. Jesus has commanded us to do this. How, how can we do this and what should we be doing? So uh, verse 37 says very clearly, And what I say to you, and I think here, what I say to the disciples, just so we're clear, what I say to you, I say to all. Who's all? That's, that's all believers. Stay awake. One last time. He says it at the very end of chapter 13. Stay awake. All right, so eight, eight ways that we can stay awake. First, 
First way, study the Bible. Jesus' words, he says here, will never pass away. In verse 31. They are the eternal words of God. Studying the Bible helps us to not be led astray. Somebody comes in and says, hey, this is, this is how you get to heaven. Hey, this is how you live a good life. Hey, just, I, got this, I got this idea, let's go do this. Like, well, what does the Bible say about that? Do you know? Are you able to, de- to determine? I encourage you to wrestle with the Word of God, even on difficult passages like this. Interact with other believers. Now, you may not realize this. You, you might think, oh, it's just the guys that you know, are at seminary and Grand Canyon University. They're the ones that are the theologians. I, I got a secret for you. You're a theologian. Did you know that? You have a particular thought process and way of thinking about and a construction of who God is and what that means to your life. Is that informed by what the Bible says? Or have you made that up? I encourage you, study the Bible. Second way, preach the gospel to all nations. We see that back in verse 10. I'm not going to get into, is Jesus there talking about the nations in the sense of the regional, or is he talking about the whole world? And I'm also not going to get into, well, is, are we somehow constraining the second coming? It's like the moment the last person has heard the gospel, he's going to come? No, God's not constrained that way. But you know, the Bible's clear. We can go to Matthew 28, Acts 1-8 if you like, but it's clear our role is to preach the gospel. Okay, so preach the gospel, all right. Well, what is the gospel? All right, well, the gospel is simply the good news that Jesus Christ came. Lived and died and was born again. The gospel is this idea that God, in fact, created all of us. He created the whole world. He created us without sin originally. And yet we disobeyed. Adam chose to disobey God. And, and we all choose. Man made a bad decision of his own. He sinned. God in His mercy, though, sent Christ to die on a cross for our sins, to take them away. And our response to what Christ did is the key. Do you have, have you placed your faith in Him? Scripture tells us that He is the only way to the Father. Think about what does this mean practically? Well, at 11.45 this, this Friday, I'm going to be getting on a plane along with Paula. We're going to fly over to Grace Mount, the, the slums of Grace Mount, Edinburgh, Scotland. We're going to spend a week over there and seeing what they're doing and participate with them in spreading the gospel to all nations. What opportunities do you have, maybe around your house or at work or your other spheres of influence to spread the gospel? Point number three, pinch and prod each other. What, is that? what am I talking about there? Well, it comes to mind Hebrews 10.24, spur each other on. I like the NIV Spur each other on to love and good deeds. I, you know, you think about a spur. I mean, I, I meet with a group of guys once a week, and in my mind, I'm thinking, hey, if I'm asleep, you know, I mean, spiritually asleep, please take a baseball bat and hit me on the side of the head. We're contractually obligated to let each other know when we veered off the path. Do you have somebody in your life that you have asked to be in that situation? 
that you've, and I'm, you know, you could take this verse like, oh, I'm going to go spur you on. I'm going to help you. No, no, no. I actually think, and we're called to do that, by the way, but I think, really, this is saying, do you have somebody in your life you're pulling in and say, will you spur me on? Will you help me? I, I mean, I realize I have a tendency to fall asleep sometimes. Um, can, you, can you help me? Who do you have in your life to spur you on? Point number three, the, the fourth idea, rejoice. Uh, I think we, we should be excited. Christ is coming. Amen. All right, huh, you guys are asleep. <laughs> this is, uh, we, we need to have joy about this, I think. This is a joyous time. God's chosen ones, us, the Christ, Christians, will be saved. Every tear will be wiped away. Every sickness will be taken care of. This is a glorious thing to look forward to. So rejoice. Have joy in your life. Point number, uh, fifth, fifth way, fifth thing to stay, fifth way to stay awake. Pr- pray for Christ's kingdom to come. We see in Matthew 6, 10, the Lord's Prayer, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done as, on earth as, as it is in heaven. Right? So, you maybe haven't thought about that too much, but you realize when you're praying that, you're saying, God, please have your kingdom that's, in, that's right now not here yet, please have it come, and everything that's, that's wrapped up in that. Do you pray like that? You know, I remember when I was a, a young man, it's been a, long, a lot of hair ago, but I, you know, I'm thinking, you know, yeah, I want Jesus to come, just not, not quite yet. I want to get married. I want to have sex. I want to have kids. I want to have a family. I want a job. I want to make money. All, all worthwhile things, right? All good things. I think C.S. Lewis is helpful on this idea, though. Uh, a quote here from C.S. Lewis. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Do you realize what it means for Jesus to come back? I mean, I think if we really understood that, we wouldn't hesitate at all. Yes, please come back. I mean, it's not... It's, it's easy, maybe after you've lived your life, well, like I'm t- you know, I'm, I've, I've had enough, I've done it. Maybe you're, you're facing a difficult illness. But, uh, right, that's, that's natural. I think for many of us, though, it's like, oh, life's pretty good. It's okay. Sometimes it's, you know, I've got to work a lot harder to pay the bills. But I think if we really understood and appreciated this, we would pray emphatically as Jesus commands. He see models for us for Christ's kingdom to come back. Six. Encourage one another in love. This is, the word encourage shows up several times in this text. Jesus wanting to encourage us. We see uh, even in the, the, the uh, item I read from Thessalonians, it's, it's meant to encourage. I think Peter's helpful here. 1 Peter 4, 7-9 says, The end of all things is at hand. By the way, I, I really think the New Testament writers believe firmly that we're only a couple of decades, maybe longest, out from Jesus coming back. I, I can't 
reconcile what, you know, they, they thought that. So Peter says, at the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers over a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Who are you encouraging today? I, I know we all like to be encouraged. I mean, it feels good to be encouraged. But let me ask you this. Who, who are you encouraging? Have you sent somebody a note, an email, a text? Hey, you know, way to go. Good job. I, you know, I saw, I, I saw, God sees it, and I saw it, which, what you did. Are you encouraging others in the faith? It's important to spur each other on, point out where we got challenges, but are you, are you encouraging? Can you say, hey, you know, that was awesome, what I saw there. Way to go. Keep doing that. Point number seven. Seventh way to stay awake. This, this um, idea, I, I think, fits perfectly Live abundantly. What am I? What's live abundantly? So John 10.10, love this verse. Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. So we're not talking about a life that's just kind of, you know, hunkered down. Okay, Jesus is coming. I got to sort of, you know, brace myself. I'm going to turn inward and, you know, I'll go to church and sing, but, you know, it's just, I'm going to grip my teeth and get there. I think Jesus is talking about something totally different. This idea of eternal life starting now as a believer, this is, it's in abundance. It's, it's, it's a, I mean, it's in every way you can take that word. And not, I don't just mean materially or, I mean, I, I think this is a life that's full, that is, um, you know, lived to the fullest. Not, not hidden, not bashful. Last way, number eight, uh, way to stay awake. Pay attention. Now, I know that was kind of a repeat, but really I'd say pay attention to what is going on in the world. And the, the corollary to that really is be intentional. Pay attention and be intentional with your life. Do you, do you read the, the newspaper and not just, not just to know kind of, oh, things are getting worse, I hope Jesus comes. I mean, I, I, I understand that. I, but do you see what's going on to enable you to, to, to clearly be watching, as Jesus says? Do you, are you engaged with the world? Do you know what they're, what they're saying, what they're doing, what the thought process is? Are you ready to stand and give a defense of the faith based on their view? It's not enough for you to just sort of be in your own world. And I, I think, again, Paul's helpful in Ephesians where he says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Full acknowledgement, the world, right, going to hell in a handbasket. But you, awake. Be, be, be attentive. Know what's going on. Live your life intentionally. Don't just sort of, you know, sl- slide along. Be thoughtful. So Jesus proclaimed the, the temple destruction. Jesus proclaimed that he's coming again. And Jesus commanded us to stay awake, be ready. Christ died, Christ rose, and Christ will come again.